Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense. I'm Kirk O'Bear. Hope you're having a good weekend so far. And thank you for tuning in. You know, we do broadcast live every Saturday from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock right here on 1330 and 101.5 FM WHBL located in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. But you can listen anytime you like on the internet or on uh, Apple Podcasts, if you wish. So uh, I'm going to address an issue that is sometimes misunderstood, and that is the concept of double jeopardy, not just in our American jurisprudence, but the roots of this concept, what it philosophically was meant to do, and how it has somewhat eroded over time, but particularly in other countries. Really, within the past uh, 20 years or so, there's been those countries that do have some form of double jeopardy protection, have enacted new laws that uh, make many exceptions to that general rule. Of course, in our country, we have uh, the Fifth Amendment, which contains a provision whereby one cannot be put twice in jeopardy for the same offense. So if you're vaguely familiar with the concept, you probably know that double jeopardy means that you can't be uh, tried in a trial. And then regardless of what the outcome is, it could be an acquittal or a conviction, that same entity or sovereign, as we say, can't come back and try again, particularly as it relates to a, an acquittal. That's the most commonly applied concept. If one goes to jury trial and the jury comes back with a verdict of not guilty, the prosecution or government, um, under the uh, double jeopardy principle, should not be allowed to take another crack at it. It's a general idea. But it also applies if one is convicted, either by the court without a jury or with a jury. And if the prosecution wishes to try a different version of the same offense, that's why over the years, jurisprudence has incorporated the, the term the same or similar offense. Now, you would think that's pretty simple to apply, but it uh, varies greatly in terms of interpretation. Because we follow an elements test in our country. And what that means is that anytime the prosecution seeks to convict somebody, they have to prove enumerated elements of an offense beyond a reasonable doubt. And where we get into controversy here is where, let's say, there is either different or additional elements, or perhaps even fewer elements of a different offense, then the question becomes, is it similar or not? Um, so let's say, for example, somebody is tried for aggravated battery, and the jury finds that person not guilty. And the prosecution says, oh, maybe we tried too hard <laughs> to get that higher level offense. Now, Incorporated with that is the concept of lesser included offenses, and part of that is designed to prevent this double jeopardy problem. But in the, in the abstract, let's say someone's convicted of aggravated battery, the jury finds that person not guilty, there could be the temptation for the prosecution to say, well, we're going to try again, 
but this time just battery, not aggravated battery. Under the concept of the same or similar offense, yes, there would be one fewer element, you know, depending on what made the battery aggravated in the first place. But if the facts are essentially the same, if it's really the same witnesses, the same evidence, then the double jeopardy ban should apply in that situation as well. This concept goes back, actually, to Roman law. And a lot of our uh, concepts uh, that fall within the, the overall goal of striking a balance between governing bodies and citizens uh, comes from Roman law. And, of course, that morphed into common law at some point. And the United States is perhaps more so than even uh, England <laughs> adheres to the common law tradition, probably more so than any other country in the world, along with our own nuances and things that we've um, incorporated. But even back when these constitutional principles were being incorporated into how the government has its relationship with citizens. In Roman law, there was this concept that um, citizens should be able to go about their lives with an understanding of what the law is and be able to trust that the government will be treating them fairly. And that's really where we see the genesis of this entire concept of citizens hopefully being able to trust the government. So that's why we have constitutional principles and statutes that are there to make sure that things don't go awry or stray from that basic principle. So imagine if, and this is true in many other countries, that one could be tried any number of times for the same offense ad infinitum, forever, that definitely would affect the citizens' citizenry's uh, view of how fair the process is and whether or not the government wields too much power over the citizens. So you see how it's directly tied to efforts to, again, philosophically maintain a proper balance so that appropriate freedoms in society can be um, in place. Now, certainly, going back to Roman law, there was a lot of inequality that existed back then. And of course, over centuries of legal principles, it's been rife with inequalities. For example, men and women have not been treated the same under the law. Landowners and those that are not landowners have not been treated the same under the law. And generally, a lot of these laws were made just to apply in the context of protecting those that are at the higher echelons of society. Now, we've taken all those principles and we've done our best in this country to apply them in more of an egalitarian manner so that it doesn't matter well, you know, what your title is or how much uh, inherited money you have or how much land you own, what the color of your skin is, what your gender is, and so on. Um, 
because we truly are supposed to be a country that regards all citizens as equal. Of course, the definition of citizen has evolved over the years, and even at the inception of our country's founding principles, it didn't include everybody, that's for sure. So let me give you an example of some of the laws that have been passed, uh, again, recently, within the past 20 years or so, in places such as Australia, Canada. Um, um, I know Italy has a similar provision. And uh, in particularly in Scotland, there are reforms, they're calling them, that affect this, this double jeopardy principle. So all those countries have a form of uh, this double jeopardy concept. But uh, due to the ever-increasing uh, involvement of political idealism or political popularity, um, there are always adjustments made to the law so that politicians in particular, and it's not unique to the United States, can garner public support because that's how people get elected. I know I talk about this all the time on this show, but we have some very clear examples of how a, a very uh, profoundly idealistic concept, that being double jeopardy, can be manipulated because of public opinion about particular things that have happened in the world. You know, perhaps the best example I can give in our country is the fact that the vast majority of people believe that even though O.J. Simpson was acquitted of murder, found not guilty, that, number one, he, he actually did it, and number two, that there were flaws in the system that permitted an improper outcome in that case. Ask ten people on the street and at least nine of them will agree with that concept. It, it's a very, very common, um, commonly held belief. So we are coming up on a break here, but we'll come back and talk more about this right after these messages. Welcome back. We were just getting into ways in which the general concept of double jeopardy has been altered. Um, I'll, I'll give an example of a law that was passed in approximately 2011 in Australia. And they, they have a statutory version of double jeopardy. And there was a law that was passed that basically opened up the possibility of a retrial on a case where someone had been acquitted. And the standard that they set, which, which kind of strikes me as odd, is that if there's, quote, fresh and compelling evidence that is contrary to the verdict that was given, then a person can be uh, tried again. Interestingly, it tips very much in favor of the prosecution. Now, as a completely separate concept in jurisprudence, we have this newly discovered evidence rule. And normally, when we're having a discussion about that, it relates to somebody who's been convicted. And then now there is new evidence that is compelling that calls into question the accuracy of a jury's verdict. We have to look at that in the context of the fact that jury verdicts are supposed to be 
generally impervious to attack. And there's secret, secret deliberations. Nobody can know how or why a jury comes to a verdict because that is sacrosanct. We don't ask those questions. And there's a long history as to why of that why that's the case as well. But generally, if a jury comes back with a verdict, that verdict stands. Then, if there's newly discovered evidence, sometimes, oftentimes I would say, it's in the form of DNA evidence that actually demonstrates that the defendant who was convicted is in fact scientifically and otherwise supported innocent. And, of course, it's a concept that we've been grappling with since the DNA science has advanced to the point that it is, and it continues to evolve. It's not just done. We don't just have a robust, you know, DNA concept that ends there. It continues to develop as far as its precision, what can be detected, differentials, and and other things about it. But very commonly, and heck, uh, 20, 25 years ago, I wouldn't be able to say this, but now I can. Uh, DNA has exonerated thousands of people that were convicted of something they didn't do. So part of this <laughs> problem with how we deal with new evidence really has its roots in this double jeopardy concept because applied the other way, the law is such that it should be nearly impossible to impeach a verdict that has been delivered and applied in the acquittal context that's supposed to protect citizens from the ability for the government to take another crack at it, to try again, to try harder, or to learn from the first try. You see, that happens in every trial where the nuance is what comes out, the actual facts And let's just take a step back here so we can talk about this, so you understand. The process by which a case ends up going to trial and the evidence is presented is a very complicated distillation of facts. But before that distillation occurs, there can be rulings on the admissibility of evidence based upon how it was gathered whether or not a defendant's constitutional rights were protected and properly observed during that process, and then determinations as to how things can be used and for what purposes. That's the basic rule of relevance. Now, again, we use words and not math in this context, but the rule of relevance basically is that if something makes a particular proposition of fact that is material to the case, meaning that it applies to one or more elements that the prosecution must prove, then it has a certain degree of relevance. How much? It all depends. Then we have to compare that with what we call prejudicial effect. Again, words, not math. So how do you measure relevance and how do you measure prejudicial effect? You really just kind of guess is what you do. Okay. So if there is a question regarding how relevant something is, a judge should determine basically how much weight it carries in in the abstract and how much prejudicial effect it has. Now, I don't mean that it hurts one side or the other because 
everything offered by the prosecution is inherently prejudicial against the defendant in that sense. But what we mean is unfairly prejudicial, something that invites the jury to speculate, something that is misleading, something that strays from the basic facts of the case. So my point here is in this distillation of facts where we ultimately arrive at what will be presented to the jury is kind of a complicated process. But let's back up a little bit further, because how those quote-unquote facts are determined starts with an investigation, the gathering of those facts by government officials, i.e. law enforcement people, and or citizen witnesses. So there's an attempt to preserve things, much like a fingerprint, but also like a fingerprint if, if it's not adequately preserved or completely preserved, or if it's smudged in the process, it can be misleading and it can stray from the factual value that it has. So witness statements are gathered. There is a filtering process whereby an individual's judgment, subjective opinion, even theory about what happened can influence how that information is preserved. It then works its way to the lawyers and the judges, and ultimately we end up with some semblance of what may have happened that gets presented to a jury. As I said before, in every case, things come out differently because of the fact that there's been this I guess, massaging of the evidence that occurs naturally as part of an adversarial process. And by the time it reaches a jury, there's a very good chance that it doesn't match with what either the prosecution or defense thought those facts would be. So you can see why if someone gets acquitted, there'd be a natural impulse for the government to say, oh, well, that's because this didn't turn out quite like we thought. Now we know that this person was going to testify this other way. And now we can go out and gather, gather additional evidence to counter that flaw in our case that we didn't know was going to happen. So this kind of goes back to why double jeopardy as a concept is important is because that could go on forever. You could have repeated trials over and over and over again. And each time, it would theoretically be different. And the prosecution could continue to perfect its case. Now, now, why is that a bad thing? First of all, it acknowledges the fact that in this balance that we have, in what the government does or can do to its citizens, there is an imbalance of power that, to begin with which is why we have all these provisions that try and create a balance. So that imbalance put in this context is as simple as uh, our taxpayers, you and I, fund investigation resources, um, equipment <laughs> uh, for forensic testing, all the infrastructure, all the tools of the trade that are available for the prosecution of crimes. And of course we need that. Of course we do. But again, when talking about this balance, there is this theory, and this, goes, this does go back to Roman law, that those who wish to affect the freedoms 
of citizens should be able to do so in a way that minimally disrupts normal citizen life. So that's part of double jeopardy is that if the government is going to do something where you are going to be treated differently by virtue of something that you are alleged to have done, the government gets one good try at it. Generally. <laughs> Again, generally. And, you know, let's throw in there this other concept of a speedy trial. Now, that is a concept that has um, become virtually meaningless in modern society. And there are many reasons for that, but in general principle, the idea behind a speedy trial is that one's freedom or one's status as an accused uh, can be a very disruptive aspect of living a free life. So that's another reason why that uh, provision exists. Time for a break. We'll be right back. There is a theory that I tend to agree with, that the United States has a more robust application of these principles of double jeopardy and speedy trial, in theory, than other countries because they're embodied within our Constitution rather than by statute. And many other countries have statutory provisions. And statutes, laws, that are created by legislatures are not, not easily changed, but much easier than changing a constitutional foundational principle. So Congress or state legislature can vote on a provision that would change and can actually completely repeal something that was previous legislation, and it, and it happens all the time. Um, it can adjust to the will of the people, so to speak. But a changed constitution requires a much more complicated process. And because some of these countries have statutory provisions rather than constitutional provisions in in response to such things as the O.J. Simpson case, which, you know, ironically, it was after the O.J. Simpson case that a lot of these countries addressed this issue by statutory modification. I don't know if there's a direct connection, but it's somewhat coincidental. So um, let's talk about the, this is something in common with both Australia and Scotland's statutes. If it is determined that um, a defendant committed perjury, so keep that in mind, perjury is the first thing. Secondly, if a defendant who was acquitted later admits to the offense for which he was acquitted, or if there is fresh and compelling evidence, the prosecution in those jurisdictions has the right to retry somebody, start all over again, if, if any of those factors are met. So let's start with perjury. As we all know what perjury is, it means lying under oath on the stand in court uh, as part of a, an adjudication of guilt or innocence. And I say innocence, but the correct term is actually not guilty, not necessarily innocent, because of the burden of proof, right? So... In the United States, what we do is that someone who gets on the stand, and if it can be later proven that they lied under oath, they can be prosecuted for a new and completely separate offense that occurred during the trial. And that's not considered double jeopardy. 
because it's a new offense that was committed after the original offense for which the person was being tried. And that does happen. So let's say a defendant gets on the stand, swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and then the prosecution believes that that person lied, and they can prove it. Can they be charged with and convicted of perjury in a later proceeding? Yes, absolutely, as can any witness who testifies under oath. Now, what's changed in some of these other countries is that not only is perjury against the law, but it can be an avenue to retry the case. And and that is frankly problematic. I mean, we deal with it in our country by the risk of further prosecution being ever-present, but we don't undo a conviction on that basis. Now, going back to that theory that I talked about in this original segment, but for the fact that these constitutional provisions that we have are very difficult to change, and they are not embodied in mere statutes in our country, that fact alone tends to make it so a retrial is not possible. However, um, in light of public opinion about what should or shouldn't be done, there's a very good chance that if these were not constitutional principles that we would have changed our statutes to conform to what's going on in other places in the world. Meaning, if the prosecution can prove that there is something that went awry and it can be attributed to the defendant, then they should get to go back and try that case again. Now, in countries that have these provisions, they're generally reserved for higher level offenses where the the sentence is either life in prison or I think some jurisdictions apply, like if the original penalty for the offense could have been 15 years or more, then that opens the gate to these possibilities. So, So that's the perjury aspect of it. Now let's talk about the concept of a defendant later confessing to the crime of which he or she was acquitted. That is problematic because, in principle, it sounds logical. However, let's think about the vast array of uh, circumstances that could be argued as a quote-unquote confession. And if that means it opens the door to the prosecution taking another swing at the ball, think about all the influences that come with that. I'll point out the obvious. Somebody who is uh, incarcerated because they're awaiting trial, they share a cell with somebody who's accused of a very serious offense. The case goes to trial. That defendant testifies or doesn't testify and is acquitted, the former cellmate realizes that he or she has an excellent opportunity here to uh, better their position with regard to their own misconduct and can curry favor with the government and say, hey, dude confessed to me in my cell. Um, There's nothing in those other countries that would stop that from being a basis for retrying somebody. Not in this country, but in those other countries, that certainly could happen. But also, as we're keeping in mind this balance that we're trying to maintain between the relation of the government and its citizens, and understanding that the amount of pressure, surveillance, 
an ongoing investigation, interference with a person's life could be ongoing forever if investigators hounded or <laughs> nothing stopping them from bringing somebody in over and over and over again and applying pressure to that person to confess, right? That is something that, going back to English common law, occurred before reforms were made in England regarding that. You know, we often refer to it as the Star Chamber. And that ties directly to a person's right to not participate in their own prosecution. In other words, the right to remain silent. So in a system whereby there is an avenue by which somebody can be re-prosecuted after an acquittal because there was a confession of some sort, think about how that provides such a tremendous incentive for someone uh, to have ongoing pressure applied by law enforcement or investigative authorities to interrogate and apply pressure. Or, and by use of trickery or deception, which is allowed. I mean, think about what a terrible concept that is with regard to relying upon the finality of judgment. And that is important, and that is something that we do still hold sacred, in this country anyway, is that if one has been adjudicated not guilty, they should be free to go back to their life the way it was before. In modern times, that can be very difficult because the stigma alone of being accused of something can be completely debilitating to one's life. Being accused of a very serious and sometimes um, either gruesome or heinous offense. Uh, I think modern society tends to give a lot more weight to those charging decisions than perhaps they did a hundred or two hundred years ago, when it was much easier, I suppose, for someone just to verbally say, I saw Joe Schmo, you know, kill Jane Smith, and proceed on that basis. Theoretically, we have a more robust investigative process where those things don't just happen by finger pointing anymore. Well, they do, but you know what I'm saying. That back then, I think citizens would normally... Uh, apply at least in their own minds the presumption of innocence a lot more fairly than we do today. Now, that's not entirely true because history is replete with examples of people that are accused of something and just that accusation alone has ruined the person's life. It's happened many, many times. But anyway, uh, the way that I think most people view accusations given that all the TV shows and all the movies and all the cultural things that sort of lend us or lead us to believe that um, these are all very precise ways of determining what happened uh, allow or invite, I guess, the public to make much broader assumptions about the accuracy of allegations. Anyway, time for another break. We'll be right back. All right, so there's one other concept I want to get into here that is kind of a nuance of, of how this double jeopardy principle applies. And that has to do with the concept of separate sovereigns. Sovereign 
refers to the crown or the king or whatever you um, a, a variety of different concepts but essentially what it means is the government okay and as we all know in the United States we have different categories and subgenres of government we have the federal government where federal law applies everywhere within the United States and then we have state laws which apply within the bounds boundaries of any given state and we have county ordinances, city ordinances, and so on, uh, right down to municipalities or um, local local laws, right? So <clears throat> different jurisdictions, depending on whether they share jurisdiction or whether they have independent jurisdiction, can have an impact on how this double jeopardy analysis works. So I'll give you an example. If there is a crime that is committed where there could be either state or federal jurisdiction, uh, and a, the best example involves drug cases, because every state has laws in various forms that criminalize certain types of drug activity. Let's just use the most obvious example. Uh, distribution of a controlled substance that is not permitted by law being a drug dealer. And there are federal laws that apply to the same exact conduct. So one could be tried in state court for a crime that falls under state laws, state jurisdiction, could be acquitted, and then because of this exception based on separate sovereigns under the double jeopardy concept, the federal government could theoretically try the person again on the same charges if they could assert jurisdiction. Now, the problem with drug cases is that's subject matter jurisdiction, not geographic jurisdiction, because not only Congress, but also our Supreme Court precedent has held that because of the, the Commerce Clause, what? Yeah, the Commerce Clause. The government gets, the federal government gets to say there are certain categorical areas of law that are essential to the peace, prosperity, and defense of our nation that must be applied on the federal level. Highly controversial, because we're in the middle of an era right now where there is a direct conflict between state laws. Many states now have legalized marijuana. The federal government continues to render it illegal under their jurisdiction. Oh, and they're overlapping jurisdiction because of this subject matter principle. Now, that being said, there's something called the Pettit policy in the federal government. And that is not a law. It's not found in the Constitution. It's not anything other than a discretionary policy that the government more or less has agreed to follow its own rules. And the basic rule says that if somebody is convicted in state court and there could be an opportunity to prosecute them in federal court for the same offense, that the policy of the Department of Justice is to not do so, more, more because of an uh, economic fiscal consideration. And also so that if there's going to be such a policy, it should be uniformly put out there so that we don't have little pockets of areas in the country where it's a common practice. Now, that being said, 
the Pettit policy is just that. It's a policy. And it can be, the exceptions to that can be many. And it does happen. I've seen it. Um, now, interestingly, Wisconsin has a kind of a reverse Pettit policy, but it's actually a statute. And it says the opposite of what I just said. So if somebody is convicted in federal court, there is a statutory ban on prosecuting somebody for the same offense in state court. Um, so we have an example there where Wisconsin is a bit more robust than even the federal standard there. And, and by the way, there's several examples in our Wisconsin law that are more robust and protective of people's rights than the actual federal protections. And that's the rule, by the way. Uh, states are free to provide more protections to their citizens, but cannot provide fewer protections or lesser protections than the federal ones are guaranteed. So you see how complicated this all gets. So we've got <laughs> a number of different angles on this whole thing as to whether or not something is or isn't permitted. Um, I talked before about how speedy trial relates to all of this in a similar vein, and that, that is that the general idea that the disruption of a person's freedoms uh, should be, to the extent possible, um, minimally affected, right? So that a speedy trial is supposed to be part of that. On the presumption that the government has all the resources and that the defendant enjoys certain rights, such as the presumption of innocence, to only be convicted by proof beyond a reasonable doubt, by competent, admissible evidence, the right to remain silent or the right to testify, all these things that exist, the government then, with its resources, should have the responsibility to bring a case within a speedy time frame. Now, that applies once a person is charged, and there, I mean, there, there are also provisions such as the statute of limitations, which, again, another concept that, that is in the same spirit. One should not be living under the threat of prosecution uh, for infinity, forever, and that there, are, there is a time period whereby, in the interests of justice, that, some, that a prosecution should be commenced. And once it's commenced, then we have these other speedy trial provisions that apply. So starting with that basic idea of a statute of limitations and how it's supposed to filter out those cases that, that can be tried, we have changed the law, and these are statutory provisions, over the years to make it so there are many, many offenses that there is no statute of limitations for, or the statute of limitations is told, meaning you know put on hold, until some future event, and it can be an alleged victim turns a certain age, or it can be when evidence through some means allowed someone to recover a memory that, oh my gosh, uh, this thing happened to me, and then it theoretically could start at that point. Uh, homicides in general, the, the, the most serious ones, that are prosecuted generally have no statute of limitations. Someone could be convicted, prosecuted many, many, many years later for something that happened. But that and combined with the speedy trial principle are also designed to make it so that the natural deterioration of accuracy, 
that occurs over time isn't something that contributes to an unjust outcome. So assuming the government wants charging somebody, they should be able to complete their presentation of evidence before a jury by the time that the speedy trial clock runs, then again, that's supposed to uh, protect people from uh, abuse by the process. So I said before that this is a concept that has pretty much been obviated by other conditions, and that is absolutely true because we have to factor in such things as court congestion, availability of witnesses in modern busy society with many commitments, uh, how many judges we have, how many prosecutors are employed at a particular district attorney's office, the myriad different complications that make it so accomplishing that trial within the speedy trial time frame is often impossible. Then there's also kind of a safety valve that's there for the government that if they can't proceed on a speedy trial schedule, they have the option of dismissing the case and refiling it as long as it's not done for strategic advantage. So you see how that's kind of like a gaping hole in these protections. And what it's, what's happened is that nobody gets that speedy trial in, in reality. It, it does not occur anymore as it sometimes used to there's also the fact that many cases are charged before all the evidence is fully developed especially if there's any kind of scientific testing that takes time um, that happens where the basic allegation is put forth and the prosecution relies upon perhaps eyewitness statements but then as evidence is gathered and requires further testing it can take many months so, again, just the way that things develop in society has affected that right as well, to the point where it's practically meaningless. That's all the time we have for this week. Hope you enjoy listening to the show. Please tune in next week, and we'll continue our discussion. Maybe I'll do more about this double jeopardy thing, because I've done a lot of research on how all these different countries apply it in different ways. But we'll see. Maybe something very significant will happen in the meantime that I'll have to talk about. So have a great weekend.